Those that remain, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and for those of you who are visiting this morning, uh, we're glad you're here, but uh, we've been studying the book of Matthew since January the 1st, and now it's September the 2nd, so uh, we're making progress, but uh, we're in Matthew chapter 6 and ready for verses 22 through 24. Question comes to mind as we look at this passage. What do you think when you hear the term Christian? Last uh, uh, Sunday, we also had the privilege of having one of our missionaries, Jay Armstead, who's a missionary in Israel, and he was asked in Israel, Are you a practicing Baptist? Uh, someone is often asked, You know, are you a practicing Catholic or a practicing Lutheran or whatever? But the person Jay was talking to had this particular idea in his mind when it caused him to label Jay as a Baptist. I don't think that's a, that's a bad thing. Uh, but he was labeling him as a Baptist rather than a Christian. So when asked, are you a practicing Christian, the term Christian can certainly mean many different things. You know, a Christian in common manner of speaking today refers to anyone that has an association with religious organizations uh, identified with Christianity regardless of their doctrine or their practice, or anyone that has an affinity for the Christian religion in, dif in deference to other religions. And that's a pretty broad and certain not a biblical de definition of a Christian. And yet it's quite common in our day to think of a Christian more in terms of associations and relationships rather than the single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ. You know, we often identify certain countries as being Muslim countries or Hindu or Buddhist countries. But the same type of identity is often applied to the United States or the United Kingdom or even other nations in which they are called Christian nations. Now, most of us would certainly argue that we are not a Christian nation in the way that we understand biblical Christianity. The majority of our people in our country are not true Christians, true Bible Christians. Now, I don't doubt that we have many Bible principles and Christian principles that were part of the founding of our, our country, but to call ourselves a Christian nation in the biblical sense uh, may be a far stretch. Yet most of the world does not hold to the narrow biblical definition of Christianity. You know, it looks for associations. It looks for uh, relationships in this respect. And we join a number of other Western nations as Christian. With such a broad definition, it is no wonder that there is great confusion in our world about our attention to the gospel, about our attention to regenerative church membership, to our attention to holiness, and to our attention to world missions. The world has many ideas of, and many faces of Christianity, but we cannot allow the world to define what it has not created. Now, he that knows what's in the hearts of men has given us an absolute picture of a Christian. And that's what we find our Lord doing back in the Beatitudes as He explains the character of true Christians. And yet some would mere, uh, confuse mere religious practices for Christians, so Jesus explains the difference 
by identifying hypocrisy. If you remember in our study, we've looked at that. And then the Sermon on the Mount, which we're looking at here, erases many gray areas when it comes to understanding what it means to be called a true Christian. And broad definitions make people sometimes feel comfortable with Christianity. But Jesus Christ never sought to make us feel comfortable in our sin. He frees us from the smug comfort unto his love, the love for Him alone. And such love for Christ burns in us with single-minded devotion, a type of devotion that the world disdains and cannot comprehend. Listen. True Christianity has but one master. A true Christian has but one master, Jesus Christ the Lord. And my question to you this morning is, can your life be explained in terms of single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ? Consider with me how our Lord explains this truth. Notice here in chapter 6 and verse 22. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Now we're going to look at two particular characteristics of true Christianity this morning. Number one is seeing, seeing as a true Christian. In our last message, a couple of weeks ago, and looking at verses 19 through 21, Jesus explains that those things that a person values most can identify the Christian. And rather than finding material goods or public honor or prestige or attention to be the most valued, the Christian values his relationship to Christ above all else. He finds his greatest pleasure in those things that are pleasing to God. His heart can be found in love and devotion and obedience and worship of Christ. Now the metaphor shifts from the same basic theme uh, uh, that still remains here. We still have the same theme here. Christ as our all in all. And again it says, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? And as we analyze the words here, we must consider the meaning that Christ gave to the eye as the lamp and to the contrasting ideas of light and darkness. Notice, first of all, clear eyes. Clear eyes. Now, I'm not giving you a commercial for uh, some kind of uh, eye drops here, okay? But this is clear eyes here. Christ begins with a general statement that explains both pictures. The light of the body is the eye. Now in this case, the eye takes the place of the word heart from the previous verses there. You notice in verse 21 where it says, where the treasure is, there your heart 
will be also. Now he uses the eye instead of the heart. So he's not really shifting subjects here, but he's looking at it from a different angle, the same idea of focus of our values and our treasures. The eye is the heart. Fixing the eye and fixing the heart amount to the same thing. Focusing our attention and concentrating our energies on something. Sometimes this is called the soul or the spirit or the mind as distinguished from mere intellect. In such each case, it refers to that point of our being in which we see or think spiritually. It is the point of our understanding. The light of the body is the eye. And so it is the gateway that affects how we view life, how we view eternity and God and ourselves. But the eye can either be clear or it can be cloudy. If therefore thine eye be single, it says here, thy whole body shall be full of light. Now the word single there, I want you to notice that word. Single means clean, it means pure, it means single-minded, uh, single-minded, and it even uh, uh, generous as opposed to that of stingy. It seems that the meaning in this case is single-mindedness that affects purity and generosity in the whole of our lives. And such single-mindedness means devotion. To Jesus Christ. And by that I do not mean merely having a devotional time with Jesus, but having a passionate, focused, burning, unalloying love for Jesus Christ. And maybe I could put it another way, you have eyes for Jesus Christ alone. Your love and your loyalty is not set upon this world, but it's upon Christ. Now here is where we can be quite presumptuous. As long as we show up for church now and then, as long as we drop a little money in the offering plate or we whisper an occasional prayer, we think that's enough. And meanwhile, we carelessly indulge our minds and our energies in whatever our desires might set before us. But that is not a clear eye. And that is not true Christianity. The clear eye functions properly as the organ that receives the truth of God for the whole life. The clear eye is not just interested in masquerading as a Christian, but in a steadfast devotion and obedience to Christ. It was the clear eye that opened the understanding of William Tyndale to the Gospel so that he turned from the opportunity to be a scholar in King Henry VIII's court in order to give himself to translating the Scriptures into the English language so that the simplest person could read the Word of God for himself. He spent 14 years of being hunted like a wild animal for the sake of the Gospel because of his single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ. It's the clear eye, the single-minded devotion that causes a Christian in the workplace to stand up and stand on upon that which is ethically right, even if it means getting a demotion or possibly even losing his job. It's the clear eye that emboldens a student to stand for Christ in school, even if they, he or she has to stand alone. Now, how does this work? Well, notice that when the if therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light, light in this sense, refers to understanding. The comprehension of the gospel truth that 
affects everything else in your life. Everything in your life is ordered by your understanding of Christ. And of that, understanding is affected by your single-minded devotion to Christ. We could call this a God-given reason that does work like the, a spotlight to show us the way ahead. The lights are on within the mind so that the way uh, you think and the way your, uh, your interests and your passions and your attitudes and your affections are governed by your understanding of Christ. Now please do, do not miss the implication here. Being full of light does not mean that you're really, really smart. And you've amassed great quantities of knowledge. You know, some of the most misdirected, miserable, and despondent people in the world have lots of knowledge, but they have little light. And we can do with little knowledge, but we cannot do with little light. As important as surely the knowledge of Christ in the purely academic sense is, it cannot replace being full of light by your understanding, being informed and enlightened by the single-minded devotion to Christ. So there's clear eyes. But notice, secondly, there's cloudy eyes. Verse 23. The contrasting picture explains this a little further. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Now the word bad or evil there is a common term often translated uh, uh, it's, it's translated here as evil. Uh, in this context it refers to the poor condition or the sickly condition of the eye. If thine eye be evil or bad. The Hebrew used the term an evil eye to refer to the greedy, stingy, miserly person someone has pointed out, the rabbis said that an evil eye indicated a grudging, cheap, ungenerous heart. The term is still used today in parts of Italy, referring to the person that is bent toward doing harm to another, or someone that has bitterness or unforgiving, uh, unforgiveness in their heart toward someone else. The evil eye is out for someone. The bad eye. It has no single-minded devotion to Christ because of the embracing of pursuits of their own desires apart from Christ. And so the understanding is corrupted. Now Jesus' assessment is that the, evil, uh, the eye is evil. And every part of one's being will be affected. If the light of understanding that comes through the Gospel and steadfast devotion to Christ is clouded or corrupted, then every part of that person's understanding will be influenced. The way he looks at life and the way he looks at the circumstances around him, whether they be tragedies or disappointments, relationships cannot be done with godly understanding. His whole body is full of darkness. It's certainly not that such a person is non-religious or that he's unintelligent. He may be very religious. He may be uh, extremely bright. But his heart is set on the wrong kind of treasures. He's earthbound. He has no consciousness of storing up treasures in heaven. His heart is found treasuring his own sinful desires and he probably does not even recognize that anything is wrong with the condition of his heart. Now there's a third thing that we need to look at here. Light being darkness. Light being dark, darkness. That sounds contradictory, doesn't it? That's uh, what we call an oxymoron. 
light being darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. Now keep in mind that light here is referring to understanding, the understanding that governs one's life. If the eye is evil, if that part of the person uh, that should be single-minded in its devotion to Christ has mixed motives, has a double-minded desire, then the whole understanding is going to be darkness. Jesus did not say that understanding was in darkness, but rather is darkness. Sin affects the motives and the desires and the pursuits of life. And such a person's life is governed by sin and not by Christ. Now what makes it worse is that the person is convinced that he understands the Gospel. He understands Christianity. He understands righteous living. You can't tell him a thing. His understanding is darkness. But he doesn't know it. He's totally blind to the truth. He may know lots of facts. He may have the ability even to discuss theological issues. But his understanding is darkness so that he does not profit by what he knows in terms of how he behaves or deals with life issues. He's embraced a form of Christianity that Christ does not approve. He has sought to straddle the fence of the gospel and the world, and he has created in his own uh, life his own form of religion that satisfies him. He does not realize that everything he sees is bound by darkness. And like the hypocrites that Jesus was already exposed, he go, does his religious duty, but he does it with selfish motives to be noticed by others. And he thinks he sees. He's convinced that he understands. But Jesus declares that the light of his understanding is darkness. I read about a pastor that was preaching a sermon on one occasion about what it means to be a Christian. And he, for some reason, he applied this to the lottery issue. But in doing so, he pointed to what the Scriptures taught regarding games of chance. By the way, it is nothing he had nothing good to say about it, and the Bible has nothing good to say about it. And how the Christian's mind is informed by the Word so that he acts in obedience to the light of God's revelation instead of the influence of the world. It was clear and simple what the pastor was preaching. But he said, after he preached that message, 100 people left his church because of the application of thinking like a follower of Christ. And the light was in them was darkness. So the darkness governed their reaction to a simple teaching of the Scripture. Now I'm not going to preach on the evils of the lottery this morning, and I hope a hundred people don't leave, but listen. We can sit here week after week and hear the Word of God, and we can say, that's not what that means. That's not what the preacher's saying. I'm offended at that. And the Word of God will offend. We need to have a single-minded devotion. Do you see the issues of life with a clear eye or cloudy eyes? And quite possibly, if you have a cloudy eye, you do not even realize that you're being governed by darkness. You probably are a complainer that appears never to be satisfied with the teaching of Scripture. You delight in finding something wrong in everyone else, but you cannot see with your own understanding that your own understanding is darkness. Why has it happened? It's because you've embraced a form of Christianity that the Bible does not teach. You are double-minded. 
You have never known the single-minded devotion to Christ that comes through recognizing your own sinfulness and trusting in Christ alone as your Redeemer and your Lord. And therefore, you cannot see as a true Christian until you cast yourself upon the saving mercy of God. So the first thing we notice here is seeing as a Christian. The second thing is serving as a true Christian. Serving. And as it been the case throughout the Sermon of the Mount, the, the Lord probes each subject of His sermon from every angle. He looks at our values and He declares that the things we treasure reveal the condition of our hearts. He looks at our vision and the way we understand the issues of life and obedience and declares that either we have a light of single-mindedness or we have the darkness of double-mindedness. Now He looks at our service. Who or what we pledge our unfeigned devotion to. Now, first of all, notice a shocking impossibility. A shocking impossibility. We see this in verse 4, and I do not use the word shocking lightly. Hear the words of Christ. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Now in the current atmosphere that seems to delight in deception and half-heartedness and non-commitment, the words of Jesus Christ were shocking. And he states an impossibility. You cannot, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now mammon is wealth. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot be done. He will not have it. The nature of God has created us, uh, that has created us will not tolerate that mixed devotion and that strange love. Listen, we must not try to understand this verse though by substituting serve for employment. Now, yesterday we were on our way to the the prison for a, a service at Stanley, and we heard the children's program in the morning, and uh, Brother Jack said, hey, he's talking about our memory verse for this week. And then the fellow went on to give an example of how you can't serve two employers at the same time. Now, I would grant that's an application of this passage here. Because if you try to serve one employer all day, and then you try to serve another employer all night, Something's got to give because you have to sleep, right? At least I do. So it could be an application. Or you can't serve an employer over there from 8 to 4 and an employer over there from 8 to 4 because you can't be in two places at one time. So it could apply to an employer and employee. But that's not what Jesus had in mind. Some people have had more than one employer. I've done that before. I worked the evening shift, and then I worked the night shift, and then I slept during the day shift. I've done that on a number of occasions. I don't want to ever do it again. But sometimes we have to do what we have to do to make ends meet. But in this case, it's talking about a master and a slave. A master and and a slave. Now that's not something we like to talk about. You know, we're good Americans and we've done away with slavery. 
We fought a war where, where uh, families were uh, pitted against one another to do away with that evil of slavery. But you know what? The Bible talks about this as an example of our relationship with the Lord. The master and a slave. This is one thing that makes Christianity and the gospel message so radical. The world is comfortable with playing Christianity, but Christ will not accept it. As long as you do not draw an exclusive line in your discussions on the gospel and the Christian life, well, then the world will accept you. They did that with the godly man by the name of Stephen until he drew a a line in declaring man's sinfulness and his only hope was in Christ alone. And what did they do with Stephen? They stoned him to death. And the same thing happens to tens of thousands of Christians every year across our world today. Even without opening their mouths, by their very lifestyle, they draw a clear line in the sand that declares absolute loyalty to Christ, and the world reacts violently. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus does not give room for dabbling in Christianity. And my observation is that many are satisfied to be dabblers. Many people today say, oh, I'm a Christian. I go to church at least once a week. I give some money in the offering. I even have a Bible in my home. And they want Christianity by convenience and on their own terms. But Christ is the Master, and we, as His children, are really slaves. Bond slaves. You recall that men that came to Christ and stated their desire to follow Him? If you look ahead in Matthew chapter 8, we'll just peek ahead a little bit in our study here to chapter 8 and verse 19. You can see it there. It says in verse 19, And a certain scribe came to Him and said, and What's the word? Master, I will follow Thee whithersoever Thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay His head. And another of His disciples said unto Him, Lord, suffer me to go first and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury the dead. They would follow, but they would follow on their own terms. They wanted to set the conditions. They wanted to turn the relationship around so that Christ would do their bidding. But they seem to be in what's called self-denial by Christ. Because the reality is, in being a Christian, there is no room for dabbling or pretending. Christ is the Master. We are His slaves. And they would follow. But again, it was on their own terms. But I think it's important that we see the distinction that Christ gives in this passage. He is not so much talking about embracing two religions as the ancient Samaritans attempt to do, do with their anonism and their, and their worship of God. But he goes back to the arena of treasure. He talks about mammon or wealth. And the, 
uh, as we find here in our King James Version, mammon was an Aramaic term that personified material things as objects of worship. Some of you say, well, I don't worship my material things. Now think about that next time you're shining that boat and, and uh, you're spending so much time with your possessions. Not that boats are wrong, folks. But where is your focus? Where is your treasure? What is most important to you? And what is it that stirs your heart? What stirs your heart? Does catching a big bass stir your heart more than seeing someone saved? Oh boy, the preacher's done preaching and gone to meddling now. Instead of our possessions being instruments and tools for service as Christians, we may find ourselves embracing them and cherishing them as the love of our lives. But Jesus calls that two masters. And He declares that He allows no rivals to His Lordship over our lives. And the first thing, in a sense, the only thing we need to know about God is that He is the Lord. And that is precisely why we cannot serve God and wealth when the focus of our hearts is upon possessions or positions in life, then our love and our loyalty is really toward ourselves and not to the Lord as Lord of all. The use of the figure of serving a master is not just a figure of speech. Being a true Christian means that you gladly submit to Christ's mastery over your life. So first of all, there's a shocking impossibility. Secondly, there's a single-minded loyalty. A single-minded loyalty. The nature of the master-slave relationship calls for single-minded loyalty. Jesus explains that dual loyalty is impossible. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. And Judas Iscariot attempted to straddle the fence. He tried to acknowledge Christ as master, but also to cling to his own passionate love for money. But the longer he walked that road, the more intense the distinction became, so that eventually his hatred for Christ and his love for money led to the betrayal of Christ. No man can serve two masters. Jesus describes the same problem in the parable of the soils in Matthew chapter 18. In the seed that fell among the thorns, the person professes to be a follower of Christ, but by the immediate evidence, it seems that he is, a, uh, he is of serious mind. But Jesus says that what happens to this man who has heard the Word of God and made a response to that, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the Word and it becomes unfruitful. For while a person tries to walk the road of two masters, but soon discovers that these roads are distinctly different paths so that he is devoted to the one and despises the other. It is true that some have misunderstood these verses to the point of becoming virtual hermits out of fear of being encumbered with material things. We must face the reality that living in this life means that we will have to face the material world. The Bible does not take the Gnostic approach that calls all material things evil. Material things are for the most part, with a few exceptions, in the moral and legal realm, of course, neither good nor evil. The evil comes when we place the wrong kind of value upon them. 
when we begin to make them our treasures. And that's why I say your possessions, your car, your boat, your home, your whatever you have, whatever you own, is not bad unless it becomes your treasure. If it's your treasure, then it becomes something to be considered. And what we need to think about here, what Jesus says, that's when material possessions become mammon or objects of worship and devotion. They become another master. Now we still have to live in this world. I realize that. We still have to have jobs. We have to have a place to live. We have to have money to spend. Christ is not calling for escapism, but He's calling for single-minded loyalty to Him alone. And so as we look at the reality that we cannot serve two masters, how do we see this working out in our lives as believers? How do we see our single-minded loyalty to Christ while still having a bank account, while still owning a house, while still receiving a salary, and going for the normal functions of life? How do we keep those things from becoming a master over us? I'm glad you asked. We first, number one, must find dissatisfaction with the world. We must find dissatisfaction with the world. This includes possessions and selfish ambition and worldly honor to see devotion to them as a contradiction to the loyal love for Christ. They are only means to serve Christ. As we saw in our previous study in verses 19 through 21, these things are temporal. They're on their way out. And so we need to become, uh, not become so enamored with them any more than we would fall in love with a snowman in, let's say, Memphis or someplace down south. I should ask someone here, do you have snowmen down in Tennessee? No. Not even once in a while? Once in a great while. And you better not become in love with that snowman because he's going to be gone. That's why you go down there, right? You know, if we will but realize that our lives are a vapor. They're temporal. Here for a moment and gone the next. And then we're going to hold the things of this world lightly. Because you're not going to take them with you. We must find dissatisfaction with the world. Secondly, we must find delight in Christ. And that's, is that, this is that which springs from understanding His work for us on the cross. You know, there are many people that admire Jesus Christ. They admire His sayings. His kind deeds toward the needy, but they are not followers of Christ. They admire Him, but they do not delight in Him because they deny the necessity of His death on the cross. They see no need to know Him as Redeemer from sin. The cross is foolishness to them. But the true Christian lives in light of the cross. The death and the resurrection of Christ mean everything to us. The true Christian delights in the one that bore eternal judgment on his behalf. And with Paul we would echo, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Galatians 6.14 And such delight in Christ affects the way we hear and the way we obey the commands of God's Word, the way we pursue spiritual disciplines, the way we worship and the way we serve, the way we use our money, and the way we treat one another. There's a third 
practical thing here that I see. We must find the discipline of priorities. The discipline of priorities. We must give first love to Christ. This has to do with our sanctification and our perseverance as Christians. We cannot cruise through life on automatic pilot. Priorities reflect our affections. In what we love most, we devote our thoughts and our time and our energy and our emotions and our resources and our desires and our ambitions. True Christians have but one Master, Jesus Christ the Lord, and to Him belongs all of these things. And so our conclusion this morning is very simple. Are you seeing as a true Christian with the brilliant light of the gospel understanding Secondly, are you serving as a true Christian with loyalty to one master, Jesus Christ? Now, last Sunday, we were asked, what is it that stirs our heart? In our last study, we were asked, what is your treasure? I'm asking this morning, are you just playing at Christianity? Do you have a form of godliness but denying the power thereof? Are you satisfied with the worldliness or are you dissatisfied with it? Where is your delight? Where do you find your greatest joy? Is it in your possessions or is it in the things of God? Where are your priorities? Do you place the things of this world above the things of God? These are important questions to consider this morning. Are you following through the promises You've made to God. Last Sunday morning, many of us stood together. Many of us filled the altar here this uh, last Sunday with a promise to pray for the unreached people of this world. Over 6,000 people groups in this world do not have the Word of God in their language. Now, was that a true promise? From a true Christian, have you been praying for those people? You've been seeking what God would have you to do to help reach those people? Are you following through with those promises? And I want us to consider that this morning as we close our service. Let's pray. Bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, can be a very serious thing to think about this morning because we are people that so many times love our things, our possessions, our stuff. We're people who spend a lot of time and energy and, and money on our homes and our vehicles and that which we use to play with. And Lord, we pray that as we consider our use of these things and, and the way we view life, I pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God would speak to our hearts this morning. Not one person here would be exempt from answering this question. Are we seeing as a true Christian? Are we serving as a true Christian? And Lord, I pray that you'll get a hold of our hearts and we'll be able to see revival begin in our own hearts as we seek to 
live for you and to see your work accomplished in this, in this community. Lord, we pray for the moving of the Spirit in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.